Good morning and welcome to our worship service here at Twin City Bible Church. When we introduce a new song, I find it a helpful practice for us to re-sing it, usually within a few weeks, so that it settles in our minds and then we can kind of add it to the songs that we sing throughout the year. And so just a couple weeks ago, we introduced a song entitled, It Was Finished Upon That Cross. And it not only is a wonderful song for us to sing because of its content anytime, it fits so well with Pastor Carey's sermon, and it just so happens that we're looking to re-sing it, and many elements that we will sing about in this song are once again present in Pastor Carey's sermon, this time as we look at the resurrection of our Savior, Jesus Christ. And so we're going to re-sing this hymn this morning, It Was Finished Upon That Cross. So as you're able, would you stand together to sing this morning? One, two, three, four, five, six, two.
please remain standing as we hear from God through the reading of his word. If you have a copy of the scriptures this morning, I'll invite you to turn to Psalm 147, Psalm 147, where we hear and read of God's care and kindness for the brokenhearted, but also read and hear of his strength to bring comfort and to bring perfect justice. So let's read together Psalm 147. It reads, Praise the Lord, for it is good to sing praises to our God, for it is pleasant and praise is becoming. The Lord builds up Jerusalem. He gathers the outcasts of Israel. He heals the brokenhearted and binds up their wounds. He counts the number of the stars. He gives names to all of them. Great is our Lord and abundant in strength. His understanding is infinite. The Lord supports the afflicted. He brings down the wicked to the ground. Sing to the Lord with thanksgiving. Sing praises to our God on the lyre, who covers the heavens with clouds, who provides rain for the earth, who makes grass to grow on the mountains. He gives to the beast its food and to the young ravens which cry. He does not delight in the strength of the horse. He does not take pleasure in the legs of a man. The Lord favors those who fear him, those who wait for his loving kindness. Praise the Lord, O Jerusalem. Praise your God, O Zion, for he has strengthened the bars of your gates. He has blessed your sons within you. He makes peace in your borders. He satisfies you with the finest of the wheat. He sends forth his command to the earth. His word runs very swiftly. He gives snow like wool. He scatters the frost like ashes. He casts forth his ice as fragments. Who can stand before his cold? He sends forth his word and melts them. He causes his wind to blow and the waters to flow. He declares his words to Jacob his statutes, and his ordinances to Israel. He has not dealt thus with any nation. And as for his ordinances, they have not known him. Praise the Lord. Please be seated as we go to this God in prayer this morning. Father, we echo the truths of this psalm, thanking you that in our salvation, you came to us not as good and righteous people, but as sinners. You sent your Son to bear our sin upon that cross and all of the wrath that we deserved. So thank you for saving us who are brokenhearted, and thank you for continuing to care for us as your children as we read about your care for your creation. Christ reminded us, that how much more then, as your own children, do you care for us? So thank you for these encouraging truths, especially for those that are in the midst of times of brokenness and downheartedness. Would you take your word and the truths that we sing and pray and read and hear preached and strengthen their hearts this morning? We pray for those who are across this nation sharing this good news of the gospel. We pray for the Bixby's and the Andreessen's, and even 
Well, missionary, we have in our midst this morning, we thank you for their care for your flock across the nations. We pray that you'd strengthen them this morning. Father, we have heard of the difficult even weather situations throughout Central America affecting those in Honduras, especially those attached to those whom we support through their teaching and service through MEDA. We we pray for their own safety, but also as they care for those around them with the, with the love that they've been shown through Christ. And Father, we are also grateful to hear of the report of Robert Hancock and his the successful surgery and his rest and recovery that he is now experiencing. We pray that he would continue to find strength, be with his family as they seek to come around him and provide for his needs at this time. But we are thankful for your healing hand, and we ask that that would continue this morning. We pray for those whom you have set up by your providence over us in their positions of government authority. We ask that as much as we can, with our consciences bound to the word of God, that we would submit to their authority and seek to live peaceably. Give us wisdom if and when the time comes where we do need to resist those things that they're asking us to do because it goes against the authority of your word and our conscience that's bound to it. We now pray for Pastor Carey as he has prepared well for his sermon this morning. We ask that the truth that you have impressed upon him heart, his heart that is present in the text, that it would be clear, informative in the lives of your people. We ask all this in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Would you please stand together once again? This is our final song before the sermon. We pray, asking the Lord to use his word in our midst this morning, that we would know more of our risen Christ.
Now, Father, according to your grace, through the work of the Holy Spirit, through the preaching of your word, would you grant these requests? In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Well, please turn with me to John chapter 20 today. John chapter 20. What an encouragement it has been these last few Sundays to study Jesus' sacrifice on the cross to atone for the sins of his people, at least the account of that as is recorded in the Gospel of John. Of course, there are those who look at this same account. They look at all his suffering, including his betrayal by a friend, one of the disciples, Judas, the unjust trials that Jesus had to endure, his two brutal beatings, and then his crucifixion. There are those who look at all that suffering and conclude that it was tragic. After all, Jesus did not really deserve any of it. But in reality, we understand as his people that his suffering and death were anything but tragic. In fact, As he neared death on the cross, Jesus triumphantly declared, it is finished, as we sang earlier. So this was not a tragedy. Jesus was not a tragic figure. There are tragic figures in this story. It's we. We are the tragic figures. We are the sinners who do deserve God's wrath. We do deserve God's judgment. And so that is why Jesus died. One way to describe why he died, it is to free us from this tragic situation, the tragic condition of our sin. And we are grateful for what Christ has done for us. Well, in our study of the Gospel of John, we are now at chapter 20. In our last time together, we saw that Jesus' death on the cross was confirmed by the soldiers who had crucified him. Uh, You'll remember I explained that these soldiers were experts at crucifixion, and therefore they were experts at determining if a victim of crucifixion was dead or not. They did confirm that, and once Jesus was confirmed to have died, we saw that a small group of people prepared then his body for burial. And they did that by wrapping his body in strips of linen that were packed in spices, spices that were meant to stifle the odor of decomposition, at least as long as possible. Well, once prepared, his body was then placed in a tomb. And at that time, uh, tombs were cave-like structures, a cave carved out of the limestone rock, And then a stone would be placed over the entrance uh, to secure the body. Well, now we go on to the next stage in John's account. More happened after all that. More happened after Jesus had died, after he was buried. And we know what that is. He miraculously came back to life. The resurrection of Jesus 
Christ. And it is his resurrection from the dead that proved several things. It proved that he was not a condemned criminal in God's eyes. It verified then that he was even vindicated by God. It verified that he was indeed the promised Messiah. It verified that he was the Lamb of God who takes away sin and that his sin-atoning death was effective for that. And it confirmed as well that Jesus is the very uh, divine Son of God that he claimed to be. Well, our passage today gives us the first look at John's account of the resurrection of Jesus. We'll be looking at verses 1 through 10 today, and we'll find that John focuses on some of Jesus' followers, three of them in particular, and on their reactions as they were faced with the fact that Jesus was no longer in his tomb. Now, we are going to break down this section into three components just to aid our progress through it. The first component, number one, is this. Number one, the disturbing discovery. The disturbing discovery. I'll read verse 1, the beginning of verse 1 for us. Now, on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came early to the tomb while it was still dark. Now, almost everything we know about this woman, uh, Mary, who was from a village called uh, Magdala near the uh, the, uh, Sea of Galilee, Uh, this woman, what we know of her, primarily comes from the four gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, who mention her in connection either with the cross and or the tomb. The one additional fact that we know about this woman Mary Magdalene, is in Luke chapter 8, verses 2 to 3, where Luke tells us that she had formerly been possessed by seven demons, so obviously she had been freed from that bondage, um, understandably uh, likely through the ministry of Jesus. Luke also helps us understand that Mary supported Jesus' ministry, even financially, Well, the three synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, uh, when they record this scene or a scene similar to it, they record that several women who had remained faithful to Jesus came to the tomb at some point to complete even further anointing of his body. They don't just single out Mary Magdalene. Here are some examples of that. For example, Mark chapter 16, verse 1 says, when the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James and Salome bought spices so that they might come and anoint him. So more than just Mary Magdalene. Luke, something similar, Luke 24, verse 10. Now they were Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary the mother of James, also other women with them. So we know there was a group of women who went to the tomb at some point. John, however, singles out only Mary Magdalene. And this is the only mention in the four writings of the gospel of her being alone at the tomb. So it's likely that there were two visits to the tomb on Mary Magdalene's part. Evidently, she uh, likely first went to the tomb alone and then went back again. But whatever the case... The bottom line here in our text is that Mary Magdalene was indeed at the tomb 
by herself for what John discusses. Now, it's also important for us to note that all four gospel writers specify the timing of this visit. They all say the same thing John says. It was the first day of the week. That's interesting that they mark the time that way instead of comparing it to when the crucifixion took place. For example, none of them say, well, on the third day after the crucifixion. No, they make the point that it was the first day of the week. This confirms that what we are reading about here took place on Sunday. Sunday. John also makes the point there in verse 1 that this trip to the tomb took place while it was dark, he says. That means early on Sunday morning, even before dawn. Well, there's Mary Magdalene by herself before dawn, Early on Sunday morning, while it's still dark, she arrived at Jesus' grave, and what she found was certainly disturbing. Verse 1 continues, and she saw the stone already taken away from the tomb. Now, I've mentioned the stone before. John, though, has not mentioned the stone until now in his account. The other gospel writers mention it. Plus, we know from history that this was common. It was common at that time to place a, a large stone in a, in a groove sort of track to seal the tomb's entrance. But Mary gets there and she discovers that the stone was not in its expected place. Nowhere in here does it say that she actually looked into the tomb, but just seeing the displaced stone, that was enough. Enough for her to think that the worst had happened, that grave robbers had come, broken into the tomb, and stolen the Lord's body. Verse 2, so she ran and came to Simon Peter and to the other disciple whom Jesus loved and said to them, they've taken away the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. Grave robbers, that was her conclusion. Just so you'll know, grave robbing was common. It was a common crime in those days, so common that eventually one of the emperors, a man named Claudius, ordered that those who were caught and convicted of destroying uh, tombs or graves, uh, removing bodies, even displacing the entrance stones, they were to be executed. So it was a pretty serious problem in their day. It's not surprising then that the sight of the removed stone prompted Mary Magdalene to that conclusion. So she ran to report this disturbing discovery to two of the most prominent of Jesus' disciples, to Peter and to the one frequently known in the Gospel of John as the beloved disciple or the one Jesus loved, and we've already discussed that before, that was the way for the author John to refer to himself. This is Peter and John. She sought them out. Now, as a side note here, pause that for a moment. Matthew, Mark, and Luke mention that some ladies eventually did get to the tomb, a group of women, and that when that group of ladies got there, some angels were there. The angels appeared to that group who came to the tomb, and they announced the resurrection to them. Let me give you Matthew's account of that. Matthew 28, verses 5 to 7. The angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, 
For I know that you are looking for Jesus who has been crucified. He is not here, for he has risen, just as he said. Come, see the place where he was lying. Go quickly now and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. And behold, he is going ahead of you into Galilee, and there you will see him. Behold, I have told you. Back to our text. What we find in our passage in John is that Mary missed that. Mary, once she made her disturbing discovery, ran from the tomb to find Peter and John. While she's doing that, these women come, so Mary was not present when that angelic announcement took place. However, we're going to see in the section that follows what we're studying today, starting in verse 11 all the way through verse 18, we're going to see that Mary eventually returned to the tomb, and then she saw angels, and she even met the risen Lord. That was a bit of a spoiler alert for what's coming. Well, back in our text, Mary did find Peter and John. How did they respond to that? Well, John doesn't tell us, but Luke does. Luke lets us know that they were initially skeptical about what Mary was reporting to them about a missing body. Here's Luke's statement in that regard, Luke 24, verse 11. But these words appeared to them as nonsense. They thought she was crazy. And it says in 24.11 of Luke that they would not believe her. They were skeptical. Well, understandably, they were, but that skepticism, however, was evidently short-lived. It was momentary. And that brings us to the second component this morning. Number two, the distinctive evidence. The distinctive evidence. Verse 3, so Peter and the other disciple which is John, went forth, and they were going to the tomb. The two were running together, and the other disciple ran ahead faster than Peter and came to the tomb first. Here's what happened. These two men at first were skeptical. They were thinking Mary's crazy, but then they thought more about what she had told them. And somewhere in there, soon, they decided... We had better go to the tomb and check this out ourselves, and so they did. And at first, the text says they were running together. John, though, pulled ahead, arrived first. Why? Well, he was younger than Peter, is the bottom line. It would be like me and all of you. I would probably get there after you, not before you. Well, except for a couple of you. I think I could take you. John ran on ahead. The younger John arrived first. Yet when he got there, he halted outside the tomb. He just sort of peeked in, verse 5. And stooping and looking in, he saw the linen wrappings lying there, but he still did not go in. Maybe out of fear, confusion, disturbed that Mary was right. Peter, though, he arrived second, but true to his nature, he impetuously just sort of rushes right on in, verse 6, and so Simon Peter also came following him and entered the tomb, and he saw the linen wrappings lying there. I want to pause just for a moment and point out something 
interesting about the grammar that John uses here under the inspiration of the Spirit to give us this account. Along the way, in this text we're reading today, he ends up using three different verbs to describe the progression of some sort of of seeing something. For example, in verse 5, about John, uh, John stooped and looked in and he saw the linen wrappings. There's a verb there in verse 5. It's the Greek verb blepo. You don't have to remember that. I just want you to hear the differences. Uh, It's translated saw there. He saw the linen cloths lying there. It's a term that can just means something simple. He, he turned his eyes to something. He, he looked and saw something just very simple. But now in verse 6, we find a different term. He uses a Greek verb, theoreo. And you can hear the similarity to that from that verb to our term, theorize. This Greek verb gives us our word, theorize. So it says that Peter, theoreo, he saw the linen cloths. It means to to mentally consider something, more than just diverting the eyes to see something, but to wonder about the meaning of something. In other words, Peter looked on the linen strips and he, he thought about what he was seeing. He was perplexed. And something else he saw caused him to wonder even more. Verse 7, he also saw this, and... The face cloth, which had been on his head, not lying with the linen wrappings, but rolled up in a place by itself. Now, we noted last time that in addition to the linen strips encasing the body, and I I mentioned to you that those strips would be packed with, with spices, there was this separate cloth that was wound around the head and the chin. Its basic purpose was to just hold the the head in place when they would lay the body there on a slab in the tomb. But put all that together and we can conclude that what Peter saw was very unique, certainly something different than what they all had witnessed when Lazarus came out of the grave. That's back in John chapter 11. You'll remember that incredible story, Jesus speaking to dead Lazarus and calling him back to life. We find there that Lazarus came from the the, the tomb wearing his grave clothes. There's been more than one movie made of this, but there's one that sticks in my mind. It's that, that dark opening to the tomb, and, and there's a pause there, and all of a sudden there's this white figure that sort of appears in a mummy-like form. Lazarus, still with the grave clothes wrapped around him, including the burial cloth still wrapped around his head. He had to get some help to get out of all those grave clothes after he was brought back to life. And you'll find in John 11 that Jesus knew he needed help, and so he commanded those around to unbind him. I'm not sure they wanted to touch him there for a moment, but told him, unbind him and let him go. Set him free. Well, in contrast, that's not what happened with Jesus. When Jesus was resurrected from the dead, his glorified body passed through all the linen cloth wrapped around him, spices and all, 65 pounds of spices we learned last time. 
in much the same way that we're going to find him later in verse 19, verse 26, find him passing through walls to enter a locked room in his glorified body. So the grave clothes were found there just sort of remaining in their position. To say it differently, since the body was missing, the weight of the spices simply caused the wrappings to kind of collapse in a very neat pile. John uses a term there for lying there. It is used elsewhere to talk about something that's carefully set in order. So this is a very organized scene. But the face cloth, that was different. It was rolled up by itself. This description is not suggesting that the face cloth still kept the shape of Jesus' head at all. But instead, it was neatly folded up, set off to one side, you know, as if it's no longer needed. So clearly, John is presenting this fact that the tomb was left in such a neat and orderly condition as distinctive evidence that no one had simply removed the body for any reason. Think about it. If you were going to steal the body, you would do it very quickly. You could be punished for this. It was a crime. You don't want to get caught. That means you're just going to probably have some help, and the two of you, one get one in, one get the other, and just grab the body, leaving it all wrapped up. Grab it and run. Also, if you're a thief, you're not going to leave behind what's worth stealing. That's the linen wrapping and the expensive spices. They certainly would not have taken time to just sort of roll the face cloth up and set it over to the side. No, in haste, they would scatter grave clothes all over the tomb if they're going to take them off at all. This is quite extraordinary. I love the way John Stott explains it. He says, Jesus' body was transmuted into something new and different and wonderful. Jesus, in his glorified body, passed through the grave clothes. It's just interesting to think about that and the fact that before he left the tomb, he just neatly folded the face cloth and laid it to one side. Distinctive evidence. What had happened was very unique, supernatural. The discovery itself, no doubt, was disturbing. They were confused and perplexed, even fearful. But the evidence was overwhelming. That leads us to the third component. We'll just call it the developing verdict. The developing verdict. What had happened? Well, he was timid at first, John was. John, Peter passed him by, ran on in impetuously. John, though, maybe was inspired by all of Peter's boldness, and so he finally did also go in, verse 8. So the other disciple who had first come to the tomb then also entered, and he saw and believed. So there's John entering finally, and when he did, he sees the place where Jesus had been laid. But now what's there are the linen grave clothes and the additional little burial cloth that was folded up over to the side that had once been around Jesus' head. And because of this evidence, John has 
has made a step forward in his understanding. It says he believed, meaning the truth about the resurrection. He believed that that is what had happened even before he had personally seen Jesus in his resurrected form. The Lord gave him this sudden intuition to perceive that the only explanation was that this Jesus, the very one who had suffered and been beaten, the Jesus that had been crucified, the very Jesus that had even spoke to John from the cross, you know, and said, take my mother Mary and care for her as your own now, the one who had been buried after crucified, he had risen from the dead. He believed that. And as I mentioned previously, John does use different verbs here to describe the progression of this, of this seeing, some level of this, this development of the seeing. And I gave you two of them, and this is a third one now. It's the term horao. He uses it to say that he, he saw with understanding. He saw with comprehension. He, he, he saw with the mind. Now John has certainly believed in Jesus, but now his faith was more complete. He was convinced of this important fact, the resurrection. Now John admits something here, though, in verse 9. They should have believed. They should have believed already. Why? Because Scripture had prophesied that it would happen. Verse 9, For as yet they did not understand the Scripture that He must rise again from the dead. So Jesus' missing body, the undisturbed grave clothes, the neatly rolled up face cloth, that, that was something to experience, no doubt, and it, and it meant something to John. They were enough for John based on that experience of those facts. He, he did take a step in his developing belief, the verdict he reached, but he and Peter had not been connecting the dots, not connecting the dots of the various places that Scripture, meaning the Old Testament, had prophesied this. They were still not connecting all the dots. That would still come. Now, notice that John uses the singular here, Scripture. I mean, that could suggest that he had a specific Old Testament text in mind. It could. There are particular verses like that, such as, I'll just give you one, Psalm 16, verse 10. That looked ahead to this moment. Psalm 16, verse 10 says, For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, nor will you allow your Holy One to undergo decay. That was a prophetic statement about the resurrection of Christ. His body did not decay. But it is more likely here that John uses this singular form just to refer to the entire body of Scripture, what they knew of the Scripture of the Old Testament. He's not saying that every single verse along the way of Scripture foretold something about Christ. So we don't force that on all the various verses of Scripture, but many did. That's why Jesus had that conversation with those men on the road. Remember in Luke 24, he walks along with those men who are confused about what they were hearing had happened. And it says in Luke 24, verse 25, he said to them, O foolish men and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and to enter into his glory? To be raised from the dead? Ascend to heaven? 
The answer was yes, they should have believed that. But Jesus was so compassionate to those men. In verse 27 of Luke, it says, Then beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. Not literally every single verse can you find something about Christ. But overall, you, you, you see where Scripture is headed and where it ends. Verse 44, all things which are written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds, it says, to understand the Scriptures. So back in our text, it's like those men. John and Peter were still developing through what what the Old Testament had said and how it connected, they were continuing to develop a verdict on all this. And of course, they had to keep working through what Jesus himself had taught them when they were with him, which they eventually did. How were they able to work through it eventually? Because of what Jesus promised them and back in John chapter 2, verse 19, or excuse me, John 14, the promise of the Holy Spirit to come. I mean, Jesus had made statements along the way, like John chapter 2 and other passages, that he would die, he would be buried, but he would be raised from the dead, John 2 verse 22. But eventually they were aided by the coming of the Holy Spirit, the paraclete. Once the Holy Spirit came, the disciples remembered what Jesus had taught them, and their depth of understanding increased even more. Listen to that promise again, John 14, verses 25 and 26. These things I have spoken to you while abiding with you, Jesus told them. But the helper, the paraclete, whom he says is the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name. He will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I said to you. Now pause for a moment. Think about when John wrote this account. It was many, many years after the events happened. And by that time, by the time John wrote this, yes, the church had worked out this this understanding of the Old Testament by the Holy Spirit's help by which they came to understand of how to explain the life of Jesus and the ministry and the death and the resurrection of Jesus. At this point, though, John had come to a a more complete understanding, grounded on what he had seen and not seen in the tomb, but it was going to continue to grow. And then whether it was in this growing belief, developing belief, or whether it was the continued bewilderment, On Peter's part, the two could only think of to do one thing. Now at this point, verse 10 tells us, so the disciples went away again to their own homes. I mean, John doesn't tell us how Peter's thinking was developing or what he was concluding from all this at that time, but most likely based on Luke's account of it, I'll read it, the verdict in Peter's mind definitely was still developing. Listen to what Luke 24, 12 says. He went away to his home, talking about Peter, marveling at what had happened, still working on it. Well, all of this sets the stage then for the actual appearances of the risen Christ. And those appearances are going to erase all doubt whether the resurrection had happened or not. And we will look at all that in a couple of weeks. You know, we speak of the empty tomb. It's a metaphor for the resurrection of Jesus. 
What's interesting is, according to what we've studied, the Bible, in the Bible, the, the tomb was not really empty all the time. There were people in there, more than one. Disciples, grave clothes in there. We'll see that there were some angels in there. A lot was going on in this not-so-empty tomb. But the important thing, the one thing missing, was Jesus. He was alive. And it is that fact that explains the rapid growth of the church as you study the early church in the book of Acts. People coming to Christ, what were they preaching? Jesus' followers preached this message, the risen Christ, and God's true people, God's sheep would hear the message and be converted, and their lives would never be the same. Well, I want us to conclude today with just a brief review of some issues that we really ought to settle in our hearts. There are four of them, and there could be more as you reread this passage and try to get the implications from it for our lives today. At the very least, we ought to settle these four issues in our hearts. First of all, settle the significance of Sunday. I'm not saying that's the most important thing in this passage, but it is there. Settle the significance of that in your heart. We saw it here. The Lord's followers went to the tomb on the first day of the week, Sunday. And that made Sunday, the Lord's day, significant from that day onward. In fact, the apostolic church, they, they began to shift their day of worship from Saturday, observing the Sabbath under the Old Covenant, began to shift that to Sunday. It was probably a time of transition, still worshiping some on Saturday. Sunday would have been a work day for them, but they'd gather early in the morning before they'd go to work and meet together. Listen to Acts 20, verse 7, on the first day of the week, they were gathered together. That became the habit. 1 Corinthians 16, verse 2, Paul writes this, on the first day of every week, each one of you is to put aside and save as he may prosper so that collections can be made the first day of the week. Like I said, it eventually came to be known as the Lord's Day. We find the same author, John, referring to it that way in Revelation chapter 1 when he received that unique, astounding vision of the risen Christ and all of his power and glory. And he was exiled on the island of Patmos. Revelation chapter 1, 10 says, I was in the spirit, I was worshiping on the Lord's day. Listen, I'm telling you, church history proves that Sunday, the first day of the week, continued to be the regular day of gathering of God's true people for worship. That should mean something to us. We need to settle that in our own hearts. Let's not forget then the exhortation that the writer of Hebrews gives us in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 25. He tells us very clearly, do not forsake our own assembling together. And it's talking about a, an assembling of the, of the corporate body. There's many opportunities for us to get together, and we ought to do that. But the Lord's Day, Sunday, is important to us. Don't forsake our assembling together. And sadly, he says, as is the habit of some. 
But encouraging one another, what encourages one another when we gather together and we see that we're enduring and persevering in our faith in Christ no matter what this world throws at us? He says to do that all the more as you see the day drawing near. I don't know when the day of the Lord's return is, but I will tell you this, it's more nearer today than it was when that was written. We should be even still more committed to not forsaking our assembling together as the habit of some, it still is the habit of some today, not prioritizing the Lord's day. But I don't back down from this. This is a mark of true believers. It is a mark of God's people that we prioritize gathering together on Sunday. Why? To honor the resurrection of Christ. Settle that issue, the significance of Sunday. Second, settle this issue. Settle the fact of our own resurrections. Settle that. It's a reality in Scripture. Listen to how Paul discusses this in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 is a go-to chapter on the topic of the resurrection of the body. Not only Jesus' body, but ours. 1 Corinthians 15 verse 20. But now Christ has been raised from the dead the first fruits of those who are asleep. What does he mean by first fruits? Well, for the Old Testament farmer, they understood what first fruits meant. That was the initial crop that came out of their field. And so a feast was even inaugurated, the feast of first fruits, where they would, would give thanks for those first crops, the first fruits, but they were also thanking God for the rest of the harvest to come. So by the inspiration of the Spirit, Paul compares this to that issue of first fruits in like manner. Christ's resurrection constituted the first fruits of God's true spiritual harvest. In other words, all true sheep who belong to the Lord will experience as well a bodily resurrection. Now, Paul in particular explains that reality that every believer has that to look forward to. Again, in 1 Corinthians 15, he goes on, verse 42, so also is the resurrection of the dead. It, our bodies, is sown a perishable body. That's what we're issued at birth. (laughs) It's a perishable body. And it continues to show signs of perishing as we age. But it's raised an imperishable body, a different kind of body. It's sown in dishonor, it's raised in glory. It's sown in weakness, it's raised in power. It's sown a natural body, it's raised a spiritual body. Verse 49 says, just as we have borne the image of the earthy, we will also bear the image of the heavenly. And Paul longed for that. He says in 2 Corinthians that in this body, this perishable body, we groan, we're weak, He says, we long for that day when we're clothed with our tent, our heavenly tent, our heavenly imperishable glorified body, just like Jesus was. Do you know he's in that glorified body today, ruling and reigning at the right hand of majesty on high? Settle that fact that because he was raised, we'll be raised as well. Our souls, even though they precede us when we die, 
in the presence of the Lord. We dwell there. We look forward to that day when our glorified bodies and our souls will be reunited and will exist in eternity that way. Here's a third issue to settle. Settle the priority of Scripture. I really do believe John intentionally made the point here that Scripture had proclaimed all that the disciples needed to believe. Now, their experience was important, but the settling issue is that God's Word had proclaimed it would happen. And still today, true saving faith is a response to the truth that is found in Scripture, God's Word. Romans 10, verse 17, faith, meaning saving faith, comes from hearing and hearing by the Word of Christ. We need to remember that in evangelism as we witness to people. We don't just share our experience. I mean, that's part of it. We can certainly relate to one another as we hear what the Lord has done in our lives and how we came to know Christ and so forth. But what we're looking for opportunities to do is to draw somebody's attention to the Word of God. What does Scripture say? It's the words of God that have the power to convert, not the words about my experience. That is what the Holy Spirit uses to convert a lost sinner of Scripture. So settle that, the priority of Scripture. And fourth, settle the content of the gospel. Settle the content of the gospel in your heart. We tend as evangelicals to stop with an explanation of Jesus dying on the cross to pay for sin. And that's a wonderful part of the gospel. But Paul lists the resurrection as one of the central and necessary doctrines for salvation. Again, 1 Corinthians 15, verses 3 and 4. I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. What's of first importance? Here it is. Christ died for our sins according to the Scripture. But don't stop there. And he was buried. Don't stop there. And he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. This is the gospel. It includes the fact that Jesus defeated death. 1 Corinthians 15 again, verse 17. If Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless and you're still in your sins. That's how important the resurrection of Jesus is. More theologically, Paul puts it this way, Romans 4.25. He was delivered over because of our transgressions. That's his death. But he was raised because of our justification. For us to have a standing before God, the resurrection of Jesus from the dead was crucial. So saving faith includes trusting in a living Lord, not just trusting in a dying Savior. It's trusting in, believing in, resting in a risen Lord and Savior. That's why we speak in terms of having a relationship with Christ. We don't have a relationship with a dead man. We have an ongoing relationship with him because he's alive. And in that relationship, we find strength for everything that we face. When Paul even tells us about the strength that we find in our relationship with the living Lord, he still describes it in terms of the resurrection. Listen, Ephesians 1, 18 to 20. Here's his prayer. 
I pray that you will know what is the hope of his calling on your life. 19, and what is the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe. These are in accordance with the working of the strength of his might, which he brought about in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. To know Christ is to have a living relationship, a walk with the risen Lord. That becomes the personal question then. Do you know him? Do you know the risen, living Lord Jesus Christ? Do you have a relationship with him? Do you know the change, the strength that he gives to live a life to his glory? If you don't, you can. Open your hearts to believe, to trust in him. Respond to the message of the gospel of resting in him, trusting in him. He's faithful to forgive the sins of all those who do. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this account of the tomb and what these three discovered. We thank you for even the factual things that you've told us about it, the the marveling about what they saw, the consternation that it caused, and yet the experience of it that even caused the author John to take another step in his understanding of believing. But Lord, we thank you that by your Spirit, you do open people's hearts to believe in the risen Christ, a work only you can do to take a dead heart and open it that they might choose to trust in Christ. So, Lord, I pray that you would do that for anyone who doesn't know Christ today. Help us, those who walk with him, Lord, though in a weak and failing many times way, help us to rejoice once again to think about that Christ is alive. Father, we thank you again for all that you do and the strength of the might that you give us to live for you. In our Savior's wonderful name, amen.